Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Chapter One. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you've listened to, well, several episodes of this podcast, you've probably gathered that one of my passions is understanding our conscious minds, figuring out what it is about the activity of our brains that leads to the experience of being sentient humans. And one of the things that's always challenging is acknowledging that, in fact, the mind is not separable from the biology of the brain. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love neuroscience is because we have something tangible to study in the biology of the brain that can tell us something about something so intangible like the mind. But what if that kind of approach leaves us missing a big piece of the puzzle? What if the mind actually extends far beyond the biology of the body? That's what acclaimed science writer Annie Murphy-Paul is suggesting. In her new book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Now, when I first heard this title, I thought she was going to talk about things like brain-computer interfaces or implants of some kind or artificial intelligence. But that's not at all what this book is about. Instead, it's about the things in our environment that actually influence how we think. Well, I'll let her tell you. Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. You know, one of the most surprising things for me when I read your book was that it's the most uplifting book I think I've read this year. (laughs) And uh, it was a surprise because I thought, okay, we're going to learn about, you know, like so many neuroscience books about what are the limitations of our brain on or, you know, how we extend it using technology. (laughs) And there were so many moments when I was just struck by the fact that it's so hopeful. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad you took that away from it. And now that you say it, I find that same quality in the idea of the extended mind. And I think that's part of why I like it so much. I'll be interested to hear about why you found it hopeful. Uh, Two reasons that come to mind for me are that it gives us so many choices, so many new avenues and opportunities, things to try, you know? And then the other reason that I find it hopeful is that it reconnects us to our nature as human beings, as whole human beings, you know, and not as brains in front of screens, which a lot of us have felt ourselves to be over the last two years during the pandemic. It reminds us that 
we have bodies, we're embedded in physical spaces, we're connected to other people. And all of those things are the things that feed us as human beings, you know, the things that nurture us and the things that are natural to us, but that so often we kind of push aside or think aren't necessary, which is really kind of crazy when you think about it. So just to be reminded of those facts about ourselves and to be encouraged to embrace them, that to me is the beauty of the extended mind. Yeah. I mean, the thing that all of those things, plus the, for me, it was also just the sense of like, I felt a sense of relief that it wasn't all on my shoulders. I mean, maybe that's sort of what you're describing about how we become these like, you know, brains and boxes. Well, yeah, I, it's not all on your shoulders. That's really an interesting way of putting it too, because some people I have said, find the idea of the extended mind threatening because they like the idea of it being all up to them. They like the idea of individual achievement and individual thinking And they find it threatening to be told that, well, actually thinking is a collective activity. You know, it's a social activity or actually thinking um, is really influenced by where you are, by the space you're in. So some people kind of like that idea of of being a sealed (laughs) bubble. But um, but I think you're right that another way of looking at it is that it's a relief. It's um, it's putting down a burden and saying, you know, my poor little evolved biological brain can't do it all by itself. It needs help. It needs help. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I think I will take away from this pandemic, a lot of things, but one one thing for sure was that I realized that, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was, there was no way to kind of like exercise. And I felt all this pressure to like, you know, exercise and stay healthy, but you couldn't go anywhere. And like, I just would like go on these long runs around San Francisco in the Bay Area. And like, there was all this decision fatigue that I would get just trying to figure out where to go, you know, and it would take forever. And I'd come back and I'd be like, well, there, there goes that day. And then I just started doing this one same route every day. And I started to realize that, first of all, that took the decision fatigue away. So it just became an easy thing. And also I did my best thinking on that run it became productive time for me. And, you know, reading your book, I, I was like, well, here's the neuroscience. Why? Interesting. So I wonder if we could start with like, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure that probably the most common question people ask you about is is some of this, there's this, this real interest now in what nature can do for our brains. So let's just get that out of the way. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> why being in nature is a good thing, why we like it. Well, I, I hear in your voice a little bit of weariness with the topic or like, <laughs> and I, I will say that when I first started on the chapter about how natural spaces affect our thinking, I I shared that in the sense that it just seems a little bit obvious, right? It's like, well, yeah, we all know that going outside is good for us. And we probably even would admit that we do actually feel better when we go outside. But what kind of recaptured and re- revitalized my attention and interest in this topic is was diving into the research and and doing the reporting on this, which um, helped me understand why that is. And I, I always think it's more interesting not just to be told to do something, but to understand why it's working. And once I understood it, I really felt like I could see it in operation. And what I'm talking about is the fact that you know, the life we live as modern human beings, where we're inside literally upwards of 95% of the time, we're in our cars or we're in our homes or we're in our, not anymore, in our, I was going to say in our offices, uh-huh. <laughs> not, in, not anymore, but, um, but you know, in, in, inside buildings. And many of us also um, live in urban settings. And these are settings that, you know, are quite different from the kinds of places that our brains evolved in. We, we, we evolved to live outside and to 
specifically, our brains evolved to process the kinds of information, visual information, auditory information, the kinds of stimuli that we find outside. Like, so not the fast moving, loud sounding sort of stimuli of, of, of a city and not the sharp lines and, you know, kind of artificial materials of an interior, but trees and water and sky and all these sights and sounds that are actually very easy for our brains to process. They process these kind of stimuli very easily and effortlessly. And what the brain can do easily, it tends to like also. So that's part of why we it, it responds positively to to those stimuli that is, is, are, are easy to, pro- to process. So um, that's where we get that sort of mood boost that comes from going outside. We feel good and pleasant and uplifted when we go outside. But also what's happening when we're outside is that our attentional resources, which are drawn down so precipitously by, you know, the kind of very focused, concentrated work we do, and by by living in these settings that are kind of not natural for human beings to live in, our attentional resources are finite and they get drawn down by those activities. And then they get restored in, in nature. Um, and once I started doing this research and realizing all of what I've just told you about what it's like to be in nature, I started to find that I could almost see that process working when I went outside and was gazing at the trees, you know, or um, just sort of engaging in that kind of what, what scientists call soft focus outside, soft fascination, where you're not really focusing on something so, so intently and so, you know, in such a hard edged way. And I, I found that I I could really tell the difference between the kind of attention that I pay to my work when I'm sitting in my computer and the kind of attention that I pay out to my surroundings when I'm outside. And so that to me kind of renewed my appreciation for nature. And my, um, I just, it was a real, boon to understand why nature has the effects that it does on us. So I, I, I hope that, you know, maybe you find that a little bit interesting too. I, I No, I did. I did. And I was, I was being a little bit facetious about it because <laughs> I think actually, you know, had I not found it interesting, I would not have asked you about it. But I think that like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that you did a great job in your book of like, just going beyond just like the, you know, so often we get a one sentence explanation of why this is. And I, I actually thought it was a really great way to to think about what you mean by the extended mind, because there are a number of things that you talk about you know, in terms of how nature affects us. So as you as you mentioned, there's like just the stimulation, you know, and how it sort of aligns better with kind of what our brains are optimized for processing. But also there are these other components. So so one, for example, that I I, uh, I found really interesting and, you know, I, I had heard about it, but I hadn't thought about it for a long time was, was Richard Taylor's work on fractal patterns and beauty. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of what's different about most natural settings that we don't often get in inside. I agree. This is so interesting because it's almost like the secret code of nature that we never knew what was there or I never knew was there on a conscious level, but it's exactly what our brains and bodies are responding to when we go outside. So fractal patterns are patterns in which the same shape uh, repeats itself, but at different scales. So if you think of like the frond of a fern and the way that the tiniest little leaves leaves are at the tip are the same shape as the bigger leaves at the bottom, um, but they just they just go from tiny to medium to large. You know that kind of repeating 
pattern, but with, with slight variation, which you also find in things like waves, ocean waves and clouds and bird song, you know, like repetition or, or sort of patterns, but with variation, those are really soothing for the brain because the brain likes to predict things and nature is very predictable in the sense that, you know, you're going to see, you know, green and more green. You're not going to be like sort of shocked by some unexpected sight as, as we often are in, in like an urban setting where you never know what's going to, you're going to come upon in the next block or the next glance around. So nature is predictable and yet it's, it's not boring. It's not, it has a lot of, a lot of things to hold our interest, but in, in that soft fascination kind of way and fractals are, are one reason why nature has that effect on us um, or has that appeal for us. And then the, the effect it has on our nervous systems, apparently when we're exposed to fractal patterns that are in the range of complexity found in nature that has this effect on our nervous system where we just, we relax, our heart rate slows, our, our breathing slows, and we become, we enter a state of relaxed alertness, which is kind of, you know, kind of optimal for thinking and and creating and learning. So uh, a lot of this was discovered by by Taylor, uh, who you, you mentioned. Um, and the, the really fascinating to me twist on his work is that he noticed that uh, after doing some of this work on fractals in nature, he noticed that he was seeing something sort of similar in, in the patterns um, produced by the artist Jackson Pollock in his, um, his drip, his famous drip paintings. And in combination with, with some other co-authors who I think may have been art historians, um, did some fascinating research looking at how Jackson Pollock's paintings changed from what they, they took one kind of intricate form, a very kind of painstaking, you know, brushwork um, when he was living in downtown New York City and he worked at an easel. And then he moved out to a rural part of Long Island and started painting in that, that famous studio where he laid this, the, his canvases out on the floor and started dripping paint onto them. And in that setting, he was absolutely surrounded by nature. He, he had these giant windows in his studio, and he apparently spent lots of time on his back porch, like looking out at the trees. And what's so interesting is that um, Richard Taylor like analyzed the complexity of these the fractal patterns found in the Jackson Pollock paintings that he started painting after he he moved out into the country. And they are almost exactly of the same type and complexity that are found in nature. So for anyone who's spent like, you know, a while just sort of sitting in front of a Jackson Pollock, like getting lost in those loops and swirls of paint, like, and wondered how can these be so fascinating and so beautiful. They're just strips of paint. I mean, I think it's in a very real sense, it's tapping into this very primitive and visceral kind of reaction that we have to our original home, which was nature. You know, that's really what is resonating for us when we look at a beautiful Pollock painting. And I love the quote you you have of Richard Taylor admiring one of his paintings saying, you know, if someone asks, can I have nature put onto a piece of canvas? The best example there has ever been is, you know, Jackson Pollock's number 14, which is black, white and gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looks nothing like nature. It's, yeah, there's no green, no green. there's no leaves. Yeah. No, but there's something about it that tunes into the wavelength, you know, in our, in our brains that is usually, um, sort of stimulated or activated by nature. And so, yeah, I agree. I think that's just such a cool connection and really, again, like gives another twist to that platitude, you know, that going outside is good for you or that being in nature is good for you. I, I, it's really cool to understand the reasons why that would be. 
we've been talking this about this a little bit about how you think differently when you're in nature, but there's also these physiological changes, your heart rate, you know, your respiration rate, et cetera. So let's take that as a launching off point for you to describe to us what it is that you mean by the extended mind, you know, and the fact that you chose mind, not brain, obviously very <laughs> pointed choice. So tell us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, mind and not brain is the, is the essence of the whole thing because, well, I'll just say that um, I should say from the beginning that the extended mind, the theory of the extended mind is not my idea. I, bar- I borrowed it from, um, I didn't, I wouldn't say I stole it, right? Because I, I, I give credit to the authors. It's, there are two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, and they wrote in 1998, an article in a philosophy journal, and the title of the article was The Extended Mind. This was them introducing the idea to the world. And the very first sentence of the article said, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And the reason I, I, I you know, I said that, that uh, the distinction between mind and brain is, is, the, is key to all of it is because the conventional answer to their question might be something like, well, the mind is the brain and the brain is the mind. And, you know, the mind stops at the boundary of the skull and, what Clark and Chalmers were saying was that, no, that's wrong. Actually, we're arguing that the mind extends beyond the brain, beyond the skull. It reaches into the rest of our body below the neck. It reaches into our physical surroundings. It reaches into our relationships with other people. And it reaches into our the way we use our tools and technologies and devices. So this, what's interesting to me was that when this idea was first proposed, it was greeted with a lot of skepticism and a lot of derision, like, oh my God, what a crazy idea. Like, who, what are these guys thinking? And uh, as I mentioned, the article was published in 1998. And then let's see, nine years later, the, um, the iPhone was introduced by Apple. And all of a sudden we were all sort of uh, extending our minds with uh, very visibly and, and, you know, flagrantly with our, with our devices, we were all, um, offloading mental functions that had been contained within our brains and and offloading them onto our onto our devices we were just to give the the simplest example we, who remembers phone numbers anymore because that is what our phones do for us and yet that's something that that's a function that used to be carried out by our memories our 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 sort of wetware you know our our biological brains so that became a very clear and easy to understand demonstration of the extended mind. And I actually don't write a lot about extending the mind with technology in my book, even though that's where the idea kind of um, first took root. I find it more interesting to think about how we extend the mind with, say, the gestures and movements and sensations of the body and how we extend the mind with the spaces in which we learn and work and how we extend the mind with the people we interact with, whether those are our teachers or our managers or our students or our colleagues or our friends, um, those to me are the most interesting kinds of extensions in part because we don't usually think of them that way. I mean, we deliberately, quite consciously and deliberately use our devices to extend our minds. Like that's what they're for. You know, that's what they were built for. But we don't usually think of, say, our gestures as being part of the thought process or you know, our workspace being an extension of our minds. But to me, the beauty of this idea is that it's really kind of turns everything on its head. To me, it's a very provocative idea. It's a transformative idea. And that's what I loved about it, that it was sort of paradigm shifting. And my goal in writing the book was to take this idea 
that I thought was really too good to leave to the philosophers, you know, in their ivory tower. And, and as I say in the book, to, to operationalize it, to say, okay, if it's true that the mind extends beyond the skull, beyond the brain, what does that mean for the daily thinking and learning and creating that we do? What does it mean to think with the body or with spaces or with relationships? And so then I went on a search for research across many different disciplines um, that could sort of illuminate that question. So that my goal in writing this book was actually to write something very practical, something that would really um, help people. And I've, uh, this is a long answer, Andrea, I'm sorry, but I just want to mention one more thing, which is that I'm so gratified when I get reactions to the book, like the one that you mentioned earlier about doing your thinking while you were running, because what that tells me is that people have already found their way to extending the mind. They just weren't thinking of it perhaps in those terms. And that if my book can do anything, it can give them a framework for thinking about what they're already doing and maybe a few suggestions for how to do it more skillfully and more deliberately. But in a way, it's just affirming what people are already doing because as human beings, we're, we, we kind of are, um, we're meant to extend the mind. We, we do that very naturally. We just don't really realize that that's what we're doing. I mean, I think that's what I found so hopeful about it because it was like, well, I came up onto this one little solution, which is like when I'm feeling a creative block, I go for a run and then I like solve a bunch of problems in my head. But now you gave me like all these other things, like, you know, how <laughs> I organize my workspace, like it should go beyond just ergonomics. It was there, there are like other things to consider. And I love the fact that it's not related to technology, which of course, when I first heard the title, I was like, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, uh, brain computer interfaces and like, you know, the sort of tech stuff, which of course is obsolete the minute you (laughs) write it, let alone publish (laughs) it, you know, and here you have like all these other ways of thinking about, yeah, like what are the kinds of things that we can do to, to sort of improve our minds that, you know, that, that aren't just like think harder, work harder, you know, meditate even like, you know, all these things that are. Right. Which are all very brain centric ways of trying to get better. Yeah. And that's very much a theme in our culture is, is like whatever it is that you're trying to do or whatever it is you're trying to improve at, the solution is to do something to the brain. I mean, I think that that plays out in, for example, these cognitive fitness activities that people are into, like cognitive training, like Lumosity and um, those kinds of platforms. It's like, okay, if I need to get smarter, what should, what do I do? I'll just, I'll exercise my brain just like it's a muscle. You know, I mean, that's a very, it's a very common metaphor in, in our culture and in our language. But, you know, I think the evidence would suggest that you'd be much better off turning off your computer and instead, you know, going, going for a run, as you were saying, or maybe having a conversation with a friend or maybe changing the physical setting in which you're doing your thinking rather than just kind of this very kind of, I, I find it rather punitive, this kind of like, just, you know, sit there and work your brain harder, ever harder. And I think there's something sort of puritanical about it that like, you know, you just have to sit, sit there in your chair until it's done. And, and, and as I said before, what I love about the extended mind is that it offers all these other opportunities and all these other avenues for trying to think better. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? 
when we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today one example of that was i you know i loved reading about this study by andrea faber taylor and ming kuo from the university of illinois uh, with kids with adhd um you know where they a walk in the park was essentially as effective as a dose of ritalin yes yeah (laughs) sometimes in my darker moments i wonder if like the extended mind has remained kind of a niche idea for so long because no one can make money off of it. You know, I mean, it's just telling us to be human, to like use our bodies and to look around where we are and to connect with other people. But there's no, no, no pharmaceutical companies making money on it, you know, no like cognitive fitness trainers making money on it. I feel like it's, um, maybe I'm making money on it, but not that much. <laughs> well, but Annie, I think you're, I think you're underestimating, uh, you know, the industrial complex here because I'm sure, uh, there will be training programs, uh, you know, the, the right way to take a walk in nature, um, you know, optimizing fractals in your room. Um, you know, I can imagine instead of condo at your, your place, it's like Richard Taylor, your, your, you know, your your living room. But just help our listeners understand too, like, you know, I think for a lot of people thinking about, you know, the Cartesian dualism of the mind and bra- body brain as being separable, it's a hard thing to swallow. And so let's talk a little bit about sort of how then you define mind. I mean, you're not suggesting, for example, that a person's mind can exist after their brain is dead, right? I mean, I don't think, I didn't read (laughs) any of that in your book. No, and I've had people, I think it's the slightly psychedelic art on the cover of my book, but I've had people (laughs) ask me if the book is about ESP or about drug, drug experiences. And I'm like, no, no, this is, it's actually the most like grounded, natural kind of thing you can imagine and and rooted in our, as as I've been saying, like in our nature as sort of, you know, embodied, embedded, connected social beings, um, but uh, yes, and no, I'm, I'm also not saying that the brain is not central to thinking. It's, I'm, I'm just saying that the brain can't do it all on its own and, and, in, 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 and in fact, never has. You know, we've always been extending our minds. There's, there's evidence of tool use going back m- millennia. I mean, language itself is, is kind of a mental extension. And of course, we've always lived in human societies and we've always manipulated our environments to help us think or to reduce the burden on our, on our brains. So we do all these things already, but we do them kind of haphazardly and um, without a lot of skill because we're never taught explicitly to think outside the brain. You know, our education systems, again, are very brain centric. They're very neurocentric in the sense that they're all about training the brain, educating the brain, um, learning to do things in your head when really, you know, we could think a lot more efficiently and effectively if we got our thoughts out of our heads more often and circulated them in these, you know, what, what Andy Clark calls these cognitive 
loops where we we get those thoughts, we get that information, we get those ideas out of our heads and we pass them through our bodies, which might mean, you know, gesturing or acting something out with physical movements, or we pass them through our environment. You know, that's that cognitive offloading piece where we can, we put ideas and information out on physical space, like whether that's a whiteboard or a multi-monitor or setup, you know, and, and then relate to that information differently than if it's in our heads or, you know, root that information through the minds of other people. And of course, we all know that that's one of the best ways to improve your thinking is to bounce your ideas off of other people. So, but we're not really, you know, students aren't really taught to do that intentionally and deliberately and skillfully. And, and we're, we're not taught to do that in the workplace either. So I, I call in my book for a kind of, this is kind of a grandiose you know, statement, but, but I call for like a second education in, in thinking outside the brain. I think that that is increasingly necessary because there's so much information in our world. Our, the problems we face are so daunting, you know, and the idiosyncratic limited kind of, you know, evolved biological brain just can't, just can't measure up, you know, have a little, have a little sympathy for, for, our, <laughs> for our, our, our biological equipment and like give it the help that it needs with these outside the brain resources. That's how I think of it. You know, I thought I thought it was really ironic when I was reading about your kind of like the first principles to offload, you know, and your conclusion. And so many of us blame our offloading for like the reduction in our working memory capacity, how many things we can remember at a given time, you know, and as you point out, like our brains just aren't ever going to be good at that. We're not ever going to be good at like remembering strings of digits. <laughs> Like that's not, that was not important in our evolutionary history. No, or, or, or dates, you know, I mean, much better to entrust that to a calendar. It's not going to suddenly change a Thursday to a Wednesday, like as our, as our organic brains will do. Yeah. It's like, I understand the anxiety about offloading so much that like, it's like, well, where is my brain? Where is myself? Where is my identity? But I, I don't think we need to worry about that so much as we need to focus on making intentional choices about what we want to be using our brains for and what we want to be using our mental extensions for. So like, let computers do the things that they're good at, let them take over those tasks for us. And that frees up our bandwidth, actually, our mental bandwidth for doing the things that only human beings can do. Yeah, I mean, I I still do think we should worry about the metaverse. (laughs) And computers, but in a <laughs> don't even yeah, don't even start with the metaverse. I mean, the metaverse is like in a way, it's an ex- it's like an extension of the mind, and in a way, it's I think a refutation of everything that my book anyway is arguing in favor of. I mean, I argue in favor of in person contact with people. I I argue for like getting in touch with your body. I I argue in favor of like getting outside, and you know, I mean, all these the idea of living in the metaverse is is my worst nightmare, frankly. So speaking of like sort of one way that I think people underestimate that can can affect their thinking um, is gestures. And, uh, you know, I read with I read that chapter thinking with gesture. It reminded me a lot of um, of a chapter from or or a part actually of a book by Oliver Sacks about American Sign Language. He has an entire um, section called Thinking in Pictures or Thinking in Sign. And this idea that like, you know, people who are, are native signers, so for whom one of their first languages is gesture in, in, in sign, like the way that their mind develops is, is almost qualitatively different in terms of like 
how they think. So he he describes this beautiful um, scene that he describes where he sees um, an elderly woman um, sitting on a porch and it looks like she's knitting. But as you get closer, you realize she's she's signing and she's like thinking, you know, with her hands. And of course, most of us don't do it to that ability, but but we do think with our hands and with our gestures. And so I wondered if you could kind of give us a, a couple of highlights from, you know, your research into sort of how gestures affect our thinking. Yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Oliver Sacks. I, I can't say I've read that particular section and I, now I want to seek it out because I would love to hear what he ha- or see what he has to say about gesture and signing. Yeah, it's in uh, Seeing Voices. It's a great place. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Seeing Voices. I will have to look for that. Yeah, so um, you could even say that that our thinking is partly constituted by gestures. It's like, that's um, what's so cool about mental extensions. It's like, it's not just that they're helping us think, it's that, you know, gestures are thinking in themselves. And we're not used to, to understanding it in those terms, because we, again, we think of thinking as happening only in the head. But in fact, you know, gesture was in all likelihood humanity's first language. You know, linguists think that we started gesturing to communicate with each other before we were ever able to form words. And then that same pattern is recapitulated every time that a a human infant is born because um, babies too start gesturing to communicate what they're thinking um, and probably to to sort of manifest their thinking um, before they're able to to form words either. And, and that language of gesture never goes away. It's not like it gets replaced by verbal language. Once we, once we learn how to, how to speak, it's, it's always there. It's this separate and yet, you know, intricately connected channel of, of communication and of thinking. And what's so interesting to me is that there's evidence that gesture actually precedes even the thinking that we do in our own heads in the sense that often our most advanced or our newest thoughts show up first in our gestures before we're able to sort of put words to them in our own minds or, or, you know, in, in spoken form. And so a few milliseconds before we come up with the words to describe what we're thinking, our, our hands are already there. Our hands are already kind of expressing in their nonlinear way, um, their sort of spatial way, what we're trying to express. And then we can actually, by looking at and feeling our own gestures, we kind of bootstrap our own self-expression, our verbal expression, because we're reading that information, that self-generated information off of our, our own hands. So people speak and and think less fluently and less cogently when they're prevented from gesturing and i that that makes me think of the long time and still you know still in in existence sort of stigma against gesturing too much or too wildly you know like lots of students are told to to fold their hands when they're when they're sitting and um we we regard um gesturing too wildly as sort of gauche or, you know, we call hand waving. We refer to hand waving when people people don't know what they're saying. Um, When really we should be encouraging others and, and allowing ourselves to gesture as much as possible because gesturing moves thought along. It helps us understand things more deeply. It also has this communicative function and people pay more attention and remember what we say better when our points are accompanied by, by a gesture than when they're not. 
But again, I think it goes back to this divide in our culture between mind and body that uh, the extended mind in part is seeking to, to, to close, to remedy. And um, gesture gets kind of denigrated because it is a product of the body instead of being a cerebral kind of verbal kind of intelligence, but it has an intelligence all its own. I also found, you know, not only the, the gesturing part, but sort of your your whole th- thinking about about thinking in groups and group activities and how, you know, of course, as educators, I think we understand that teaching someone else is the best way to learn the thing that you need to you need to learn. And you, you talk about um, this one method, I think that you call the jigsaw um, method. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the jigsaw method? Yeah, this this to me is an incredible story because it really grew out of um, real social tensions and conflicts. So Elliot Aronson was this um, social, psych- very prominent 20th century social psychologist. I, sh- I shouldn't talk about him. In the pre- shouldn't talk about him in the past tense because he's still alive. But um, in the early 70s, there were all kinds of conflicts and tensions over integration in the Austin, Texas school system, and he was called in to try to see what a social psychologist could sort of contribute to, to, to solving this, um, this problem. And what he found was that the culture of the schools and, um, this, anyone who's been in in an American school will testify that this is still the case is often very competitive. It's very each student for themselves. Um, it's not collaborative, it's not supportive and that, that that kind of culture, especially as sort of manifested between different groups, you know, um, Latino students and white students and black students, um, that was exacerbating the the tensions that were that were roiling because of integration. So his solution was interestingly very different from like the kind of diversity training that we might people might try to institute today. He took aim at the very way that that the students were learning and the very way that they related to each other. And what he did was he created, he and his graduate students created this method of education where it was no longer like each student was learning for him or herself. Instead, each student had to collaborate with each other to get the full picture and to succeed um, in school. And what I mean by that is that um, say a class was learning about Eleanor Roosevelt the material on Eleanor Roosevelt would be divided up such that one person was one student, students were divided into groups, and then one student would be responsible for learning about Eleanor Roosevelt's childhood, and another one would be responsible for learning about her wartime work, and another one would be responsible for learning about her philanthropy, and and so on. And then each student would teach the others about what they had become sort of a, a provisional expert on. And no student could do well unless they listened carefully, asked good questions, you know, did a good job on their own, their own section, but also, you know, sort of related to and, and embraced and brought in the other students and what they had, the expertise that they had to contribute. So it changed the incentives around what it takes to do well in school. And Aronson and his graduate students found that this had a really marked influence on racial relations in the schools, in, in addition to actually leading to better learning, which I just think is such a brilliant way of approaching the issue. He never talked about race or ethnicity at all. What he talked about and what he worked on was the nature of the relationships among people, you know, and that is really what learning and education is all about. And 
the jigsaw method is still used sometimes and it has kind of like ups and downs of popularity. But I really, to me, it's, I ended the book with it actually before the last chapter before the conclusion. And I really would love to see that kind of thinking applied in our own world, um, which could use it. You know, I feel like it's one more um, reason why a lot of university professors, at least, and I'm sure this is trickling down or maybe even started in uh, in elementary and and K through 12, you know, use a flipped classroom model where like, you know, you yeah, you like you record your lectures. But then when you get into the class, it's really about these hands on activities, about the social side of it. Um, it, Yeah, I felt like your book really kind of lent lent a lot of credence to that approach, whereas sometimes it feels like, well, like, what are you really doing as an educator if you're not standing up there and espousing all that your brain has (laughs) managed to learn? I know. That's our model of what it means to teach and what it means to be an expert when really perhaps we'd be better off thinking of education as, as skillfully creating context for thinking. And of course, one of the most, or perhaps the most important context for thinking is the social context. So yeah, I mean, that that's why I tell the story in the book about Carl Wieman, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist. I mean, this is a guy who's like a giant brain, right? I mean, like he's really, he could be the ultimate example of like, you know, sort of a genius preaching from on high or lecturing from on high. But instead, he's put all his energy or much of his energy in his in recent years into reinventing physics education. And what he's trying to do is bring the convivial kind of like um, social spirit of the of the graduate student lab into undergraduate classrooms, which, of course, were usually characterized by lots of students, you know, sitting quietly in rows, you know, while the, the professor lectures. But he found that it was really the social element of working side by side in a lab together that turned his uh, new graduate students who were just joining in his work in his lab into basically peers of his, you know, like, like professional physicists who could think like a physicist. It was the social element that was sort of performing that magic. So he's trying to bring that into the undergraduate classroom with a lot of success. So I, I, I do think that you know, the message is getting out there that that relationships are really the key to to learning. So for that and many other hopeful, well-researched and well-documented tips on how you can improve your mind, not just your brain, our listeners should pick up The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain by Annie Murphy Paul. Annie, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Andre. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show or support us directly, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. This episode is edited by Daniel Link. And additional production help comes from Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Hold up. 